Today, I have John Doran with me. John is the Director of Engineering at Forest, a Dublin-based SaaS company that processes appointments for the hair and beauty industry. He previously worked as a technical lead at Travelport Digital, where he supported major airlines and hotel chains with their mobile platforms. I'll be speaking with John about the early days of their business, the challenges they faced while scaling, and how they were able to reshape their processes and team to overcome these challenges. John, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. The first thing I'd like to discuss is the early days of Forest. To just give the listeners a little bit of background, what, what type of product is Forest? Sure. So Forest is essentially um, it's a salon software focused in, in the hair and beauty industry. Uh, and it didn't actually start off as that. Back in 2003, it was actually a messaging service, actually built by uh, a few students in Trinity College, one of which was his name was Ronan Percival. Ronan is actually our current CEO. So that in 2003, that messaging service was supporting um, nightclubs, dentists, various small businesses around Dublin. And the guys were finding it really hard to get some traction in, in those various different industries. So Ronan actually went and uh, worked as a, as a hair receptionist in, in a salon. And what he learned from that was that through using messaging and a platform that they were able to actually increase revenue for salons and actually get more money in the tills, which was a hugely powerful thing. So from there, they were able to, to really focus on, the, on that particular industry. They built supplementary features and, and a product around that messaging service. So in 2004, it became a kind of a fully fledged appointment book. And, and from there, then they, they integrated that appointment book with the, the messaging service. So by 2006, then, I guess you could, could classify Forest as a full salon software. So it had things like stock take, financial reporting and staff rostering. That fu fully based salon software system was pretty popular in Ireland. And actually, by between 2006 and 2008, they became the number one in the industry in Ireland. So what that meant was, you know, the majority of salons in Ireland were running on, on the Forest platform. And that was actually an on-premise system. So all the data would have been stored locally in the hair salon and there was no backend. Just so I understand correctly, so you say it was running on-premise. Mm -hmm. It was an appointment system. So is this where somebody would come into the salon and make an appointment and they would enter it into a local computer and it would be just stored there? Exactly. So, so what Ronan figured out throughout his time uh, working in the salon that by actually sending customers text messages to remind them that about their appointments really helped cut down the no-show rates, meaning that customers did turn up for their appointments when they were due and meaning that the staff members didn't have to sit around waiting for customers to walk in. So as Forrest, I guess, as a company developed, we, we moved into building extra features around that core system, which is an appointment book, which manages the day-to-day -day, uh, rows of a, a hairstylist. So we built uh, uh, email and marketing retention tools around that. I, can't, I guess a really important point about Forest's history is when the recession hit in 2008 in Ireland, we uh, moved into the UK. So as we were kind of the number one provider in Ireland, we felt uh, when the recession hit that we, we needed to move into the UK. But being on-premise meant there was a lot of friction actually installing the system into the salons. So in 2011, they actually took a, a small seed round to build out, I guess, the, the cloud backend. When, once that kind of cloud backend was built, it took about a year to get it off the ground and released. 
Um, and as the company kind of gained traction in the UK, they, they migrated all of their on-premise customers onto the, the cloud solution. I guess you would say that when it was on-premise, a lot of the engineering effort or the support effort was probably in keeping the software working for your customers and mm -hmm. just addressing technical issues or questions and things like that. And that was probably taking a lot of your time. Is, is that correct? Precisely. The the team was quite small. So we, we had five engineers who were essentially building out the cloud backend and one engineer who was maintaining that Delphi on-premise application. So what was happening was our CEO, Ronan, was actually the product owner at that time. And the guys were making pretty drastic and kind of quick fire decisions in terms of features being added to the product based on, you know, getting a certain customer in that really needed to, to pay the bills. And, and some of those decisions, uh, I guess, made the product a bit more complex uh, as it grew, but it certainly was, it was a big improvement from the on-premise on uh, solution. Hmm. So the on-premise solution you said was written in Delphi, is that correct? Yeah. When it was first started, was it just a single developer? Exactly. Yeah. So it was it was literally uh, put together by some some outsourcers and a single developer managing it. There was no there was no real in in house developers. It was you know a good bit of turnover there. But when, when that small seed round came in, the guys put the, together the foundations of the, the cloud based backend, which was a, a Java kind of classic end uh, tier application with WebSocket to update the appointment screen if anything changed on the backend. And um, you, you would kind of consider it a, a majestic monolith as such. When you started the cloud solution, were you maintaining both systems simultaneously? Yeah, so um, for a full year, the guys were, were building out that backend. And at the same time, there was uh, one guy who was, who was literally maintaining, fixing bugs on that, that Delphi application. And just to kind of give you an example, um, one of the guys who, who was actually working on support he, he actually went and taught himself SQL and he used to, to tunnel into the, the salons at nighttime to fix any database issues. And, um, oh, wow. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, hardcore stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, another big thing about not being uh, cloud-based and, and one of the, the big reasons we needed to become cloud-based was we, you know, as, as people move online and, you know, it's, it's quite common to book, you know, your cinema or some, something else online, but, um, Ronan could see that trend coming for online bookings, uh, and we needed to be cloud-based to, to build to build out that online booking system. And just to kind of give you the, an idea of the scale, like last year, we we would have processed about two, over two billion euros worth of transactions through the system. So it's really it's really growing, and um, you know it's it's huge huge scale at the moment. But um, I guess looking looking back at the past, the guys would have built uh, a great robust system getting us to about that thousand salon mark particularly in the UK but that would have been the point that the guys would have started seeing some you know shakiness in terms of stability and the speed at which at which we could deliver new new features you were saying the initial cloud version took about a year to create exactly yeah and uh, you had five engineers working on it after the seed round mm -hmm. at that time when you first started working on the, the cloud version of the application, did you have a, a limited rollout to kind of weed out defects or, or how did you start transferring customers over? So there, there was definitely some reluctant customers to, to move across. We did it, I guess, uh, 
gradually there was a lot of reluctance uh, for people. People were quite scared of their data not being stored in their salon. So it was quite hard to get those some of those customers across. And only two weeks ago, we, we actually officially stopped uh, supporting that and our, our final two customers have finished up. So, you know, it took us a good seven years to, to finish that transition. Oh, okay. So it was a very gradual transition where you actually, did you ask customers whether they wanted to move or, or how did you... Oh, yeah, it was a huge, huge sales uh, and team effort to, to get people across the line. But I would say the majority of people either would have churned or or would have moved across the, the more forward thinking people. I, you know, they would have been getting new features and a, a better service. Right. So it's kind of more of a, a marketing push from your side to say, hey, if you move over to our cloud solution, you'll get all these additional capabilities. But it was ultimately up to them to decide whether they wanted to move. Yeah. So, um, you know, some companies, they they kind of build a product with a different name and they try and, and sell it. But uh, Forest, we actually kept the UI very similar. So it wasn't very uh, intrusive to, to the users. It was just kind of seen as an upgrade with, um, I guess, less friction. Right, right. I want to talk a little bit about the early days where you, you said you spent about a year to build the MVP. Mm-hmm. At that point, let's say after that year had passed, mm-hmm. Were you still able to iterate quickly in terms of features or were you having any problems with performance or downtime at that point? So in 2012, when the cloud-based product launched, particularly in the UK, once we hit about 1,000 customers, we started to see creaking issues in the back end. Lots of JVM garbage collection problems, lots of uh, database contention, and lots of outages. So... We, we got to a point where we were trying hardware at the problem to, to make things a little bit faster. Some other problems were we kind of relied a lot on a single person to do a lot of the deployments. It wasn't really a team effort to, to ship things. It was more so developer finishes code in the machine, push it off. Maybe at the end of the month, we'd, we'd ship. I guess the big problem was the, the stability. So essentially what, what happened was in terms of the architecture, we were introducing caches at various levels to, to try and um, cope with performance. So uh, a layer of caching on the client side was introduced. Uh, Memcached uh, was introduced. Uh, level level two hibernate caching. Always just you know really focusing on fixing the immediate problem without looking at kind of the bigger picture. Once I said I mentioned that thousand salons as a marker. I guess once we hit like twelve hundred. The guys had to introduce uh, the idea of silos, which was like essentially 1,000 customers are going to be linked to a specific URL, and that URL will host the the API return back the data that they need, and then the other silo would would service the other, you know, 200 growing to say 1,000 businesses. So essentially, if you think about it, you've got I guess a, a big point of failure if if that if that server goes down, there's no load balancing be- between between servers and those two servers are, are their biggest size possible. So I guess a big uh, red herring was the the cost, uh, I guess, implications of that. You know, it was the largest uh, instance type on Amazon at an RDS and EC2 level. The entire system was on a single instance for each silo? Yeah. So if you imagine um, when, you, when you log in, you'll get returned a URL for a particular silo. So what would happen then would be X businesses 
go to that silo and X, uh, Y businesses go to the other silo. And what that did was basically it uh, load balanced the the businesses at a kind of a database level. You, you were mentioning how you had like different caching layers, for example, memcached and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but those were all being run on the same instance. Is that correct? Um, they would have been hosted by Amazon. Okay. So those would have been uh, Amazon's hosted services. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like when you build that MVP or you build that initial stage, of your product kind of, you're focusing on building features. You're fo- focusing on getting bums on seats and you, it was that point, that twelve or that twelve hundred to a thousand salons that where we felt that pain, that scaling pain. Mm-hmm. So in a way, like you said, you were doing multi-tenancy, but it was kind of split per thousand customers. Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine if if a failure happened on one of those servers, there is no fault tolerance. If the deployment goes wrong in terms of like uh, putting a, an instance in service, those those thousand customers can't make purchases. Their customers can't make online bookings. There's no uh, appointments being served. You can't run transactions through the till. So uh, it would cause huge huge friction. Right. Uh, what were the managed services you were using in combination with the EC2 instance? So um, a really good decision at the start of the guys moving to cloud was making a big bet on Amazon mm-hmm. in terms of utilizing them for RDS, EC2, caching. There was no deployment stack or there was no deployment uh, infrastructure as code. It was all, I guess, manually done through Amazon console, which is something we later address, which we'll, we'll chat about. But it, it was all, all heavily reliant on Amazon. And you had mentioned that you were relying on one person to do deployment. Was was that still the case at this time? Yeah. So up until, I guess, 2014, um, it, it was all reliant on one guy who, who literally had to bring his laptop on holidays with him and tether from cafes if, if it, something went down. To deploy new code, he, he was the only guy who really knew how to do it. So it was, uh, it was a huge pain point and bus factor. So it, it sounds like in terms of how the team was split up, there was basically you have people working on development and you have a single person in the sort of ops role. Yeah. And uh, essentially when, when this kind of thing happens, you the people who write the code don't ship it. You get all sorts of problems in terms of dependencies and tangles and, and you know, just, just knowledge, you know, knowledge silos. And also, you know, because the guys were working a kind of in their own verticals uh, in different areas of the product, there was no consistency. Consistency in terms of the engineering values, how they were working, practices, procedures, you know, deployments, that sort of stuff. It was all it was all very isolated. So um, people did their own their own thing. So uh, you could imagine for say trying to hire someone new would be quite hard because it would. Um, you know, for someone to come in, very, very different depending on, on which engineer you talk to. That makes sense. Yeah. Was was this a locally located team or was this a remote team? Yeah. So um, most of the guys were actually in Dublin. Um, one or two people traveled a little bit, worked remotely, and uh, a couple of people did actually move abroad. So it was predominantly based in Dublin, but um, some people traveled a bit. In terms of processes for someone knowing how to deploy or how to work on a feature, mm-hmm. it was mostly tribal knowledge. It's more just trying to piece together a story from talking to different people. Is that correct? Precisely. So um, 
you, you had no consistency in uh, languages or um, frameworks, mm. um, except I would say that that monolith, uh, that that initial part of the platform was extremely consistent uh, in terms of the patterns used, uh, the, the, I guess the way it communicated with the database and you know how, how the API was built uh, was extremely strong and uh, is is the heart of still is the heart of the organization. So say, for example, there was, there's a lot of really good, uh, say, integration and unit tests there, but they got abandoned for, for a little while. And we, we had to bring them back, back to life to, to, to enable us to, to start moving faster again and to give us a lot more confidence in our releases. Mm, so it sounds like maybe the initial version in the first year or so had a pretty solid foundation, mm-hmm. but then as... I'm not sure if it was the team that grew or just the the rate of features. Uh, would you say that kind of? I would say it was a combination of the the growth of the company in terms of the number of customers on it and the focus on de- delivering features and focusing on feature development rather than thinking about scalability and being extremely aware of it. Mm. How, how fast were you gaining customers at that time? Was this a steady increase or large spikes? Oh, you're talking you're talking thirty percent annually, so thirty percent annually, okay, and really really low churn rate as well. So, what would you feel was the turning point where it felt like your software had or your business had to fundamentally change due to the number of customers you had? So it was essentially those issues around stability uh, and cost were were unsustainable for the business. Customers complaining. Uh, our staff not being able to to do their job. So, you know, part of Forest's core values and mission is to help the salon owner grow their business and use use the tools that we provide to, to do that. And if people are firefighting uh, and not being able to to support our customers, to to being able to send help them send really great marketing campaigns to boost their revenue, if we're not doing that and um, we're we're firefighting, the company would have been pointless. So we weren't fulfilling our mission by coping with outages and, and, and panicking all the time. The costs, again, were, were unsustainable. And, you know, the team, you know, was just, I guess, uncom- uncomfortable with this, the state we were in. So the turning point would have been, I would say, in like 2014, when we we essentially hired in some people who had more, more experience in, I would say, high scalability systems and people who who cared a little bit more about quality and best practices so when you hire three four people like that you kind of you bring in a a different way of thinking you kind of you hire hire these different values you know when you when you try to to talk to a team and try and, and get these things out, they're normally quite organic. But if if you bring people in from maybe a similar comp, uh, they're all from you know a, a different a- industry, but similar experience, you you kind of get that for free. And that's what Forrest did. So um, basically, in two thousand fourteen, and since now we've we've invested heavily in in hiring and hiring the the right people in terms of how how they operate and in terms of how they think, but also bringing that back to our, our values and um, and what we try to do. Do you think that bringing in you know new new people, new talent is really one of the uh, largest factors that allowed you to make such large changes to change your culture and change your way of thinking? 
The other thing would be, I would say, the trust um, that Ronan, CEO, and the leadership team Forest has, um, and their openness to change. Um, I think that uh, a lot of other organizations would be quite scared uh, of this type of change in terms of heavily investing in, in the product to make it better. Just uh, like from experience and talking to other people, you know, it would have been very easy to to not invest, uh, and, you know, and and just leave the software taking along with bugs and handling the downtime. But it was it was about the organization and their value, their values around really helping helping the salon owners and and not spending that time firefighting. So it sounds like within two years or so of, of launch was when you uh, decided to, to make this change. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not an, not an easy one to make because, you know, it's really hard to find talent. Um, and we, we, we were lucky to, to really get some, some great people in. And it wasn't about making radical change at, at the start. You know, the, it started from foundations. So it was things like, you know, let's get a continuous integration server going here guys and you know let's let's bring all back let's bring back all the the broken tests and, and make sure they're running so that we can have a bit more confidence in what we ship we you know introduce code review code reviews and pull requests back in, into things and a bit more collaboration and getting rid of those pockets of knowledge and you know reliance on individuals i do want to go more into those a little bit later okay but before that when you were having performance issues or having outages before all these changes, how were you finding out? Was it being reported by users or did you have any kind of process um, you know, to notify you? So the, the quite common thing was basically the phones would, would light up. Um, there was very, very uh, little transparency of what, what was going on in the system. We got to a stage where we we actually installed a physical red button on the support floor, which uh, texted everyone in the engineering team. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the things that we often hear is when a system has issues like this, it's difficult to free up people to fix the underlying problems um, due to the time investment required, and as you mentioned, all the the firefighting going on. How did you? overcome this issue so i guess you know the beforehand it was it was a matter of you know restart the server let's keep going with our features but it was really about stopping to think about um you know what, what really happened here and you know maybe let's write down an incident report and, and gather some data about what what actually happened under the hood and a few things you know a few questions key questions could be raised from that you know like what are we going to do to stop this from happening again why didn't we know about it for for the customers? And you know, what were the steps we made to to reproduce and actually fix this issue? And and what are the actions that are going to happen? And how are we going to track that those actions do happen after after the issue? Let me see if I understand this correctly. You you actually did build sort of a a process when you would have incidents to figure out. Okay. That was the first step, I would say. Yeah, so let's figure out what happened and how. And it was just about gathering data and getting information about what was what was really going on. So mm -hmm. it allowed us to identify, you know, common things that happened that maybe usually we would just, you know, restart server and forget, but or fail over database and and you know everything's normal in a couple of hours. But 
as we started gathering that data, we started to see common problems. So maybe, you know, our deployment process isn't good enough and it's, it's error prone or this specific message broker isn't fault tolerant or the IOPS in the database are too high at this time due, due to these queries happening. But after we got that data, you know, uh, and we started really digging deep into the system, we realized that this isn't something that you could just take two days in your sprint to start to fix. And just coming back to your question on uh, finding that time to, to fix things, we, we kind of had to make a, a tough call when we looked at everything to, to say, you know, let's, let's stop feature work and let's stop product work and let's fix this properly. Okay, yeah. So, so basically you got more information on, on why you were having these problems, why you were having downtime or performance issues and started to build kind of a picture of and and realize that oh this is this is actually a very large problem and then as a company you made the decision that okay uh, we're going to stop feature development to make sure we have enough resources to really tackle this problem precisely and um from the product side of things you know this was a big big driving factor in it you know we wanted to build all these amazing features to to help salons to grow, but we just couldn't actually deliver on them, and we couldn't have any predictability on it on when we delivered them because because of that firefighting, and you know because we were sidetracked so much, there was no confidence in in the release cycle and stability or or what what we could actually deliver. So um, yeah, it was it was a pretty hard decision for us to make in terms of uh, the business because we had had a lot of deliverables and commitments to customers and, and to, you know, to our sales team. So we, we had to, had to make that call. You were mentioning earlier about how you started to bring in a continuous integration process Mm -hmm. before you had done that. You also mentioned that there were tests in the system initially, but then the tests kind of went away. Could you kind of elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah. So as I said, like the, the kind of the core of the system was built with a lot of integrity and a lot of really good patterns. For example, uh, a lot of integration tests uh, running against uh, the APIs uh, were written and maybe were, were written against a specific feature, but they were never ran as a full suite. So um, what would happen was there'd be maybe one or two flaky ones. And um, they, you know, because there was no continuous integration server, it was it was easy enough for a developer to run you know specific tests for that uh, functionality that they were 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 building. But because there was the, the CI wasn't there, there was no full suite ran. So when when it came time to actually do that, we realized you know you know seventy percent of them are broken. So they they were building tests as they developed, but then. They were maybe not running those uh, as the software before commit or merge, right? And so, adding the continuous integration process, having uh, some kind of build process, really forced people to pay attention to whether those tests were working or not. Mm-hmm. Exactly, um, and just a, a step on from that was, you know, um, a huge delay in getting stuff to test because. Because we relied on that one guy to build stuff, um, and actually he that was you know done from a you know a little Linux box in the, the engineering floor, um, which was quite temperamental. Uh, it, you'd be quite delayed in actually even just getting stuff into people's hands, and it's kind of what the core of software development is all about, right? It's, you know, 
getting getting what you build into people's hands and we just couldn't do it mm, just because the the process of actually doing a build and a deployment was so difficult yeah exactly when you added the continuous integration process uh were there other benefits that you maybe didn't expect when you started bringing this in so um i, I yeah i mentioned the deployments as a big one i think the people started to see real um, benefit in terms of their workflow. I guess along with the continuous integration, there was uh, more more discipline in terms of uh, how we worked. So it, the CI server introduced a better uh, workflow uh, for us, and it helped us see real clarity uh, in terms of the quality of the system, where, where it had coverage, where it didn't. And... Um, it also helped us break up the, the system a little bit. So I mentioned Majestic Monolith. So it was actually, when, when we went to look at it, there was five application servers sitting in one repo. And the CI server and some, some crafty engineering helped us split that up quite well uh, to break out the, that uh, repo into to multiple application servers. Mm, so, so actually bringing in the continuous integration actually encouraged you to re-architect your application in, in certain ways and, and break it down into smaller pieces. Exactly. Yeah. And and really it's it was all about confidence um and being able to to test and, and know know that we weren't regressing. What do you think people saw in terms of the pain or the challenges from that sort of monolith setup that you think sort of inspired them to break it up? The, the big one was uh, a bug fix in one small area of the system meant the whole stack had to be redeployed which took hours and hours. Mm. The other thing would have been the, the speed of development in terms of navigating around a pretty large code base um, and the, the slowness of the, the test suite to run, which was around 35 minutes when we, when we started and got them all green. The pain of running the tests and having it possible to break so many things with just one change maybe encourage people to, to shrink things down so they wouldn't have to think so much about the whole picture all the time. Exactly. We started to see, you know, a small fix or a small feature breaking something completely non-related. Typical example would have been due to uh, HTTP connection configuration on a client uh, breaking completely un unrelated areas of the system. Mm, okay. One thing I'd like to talk about next is the monitoring. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it was really just phone calls would come into support and you even had the the big red uh, button you could press. Uh, what did you do to add monitoring to your application? It's pretty uh, important to mention that, you know, we talked about making a decision to stop, to down tools and start fixing stuff. So that's that's when uh, we, we started, you know, looking at the monitoring and, and, and everything else, like continuous integration, bring back tests. But a kind of a key point of, uh, of this evolutionary project was was the monitoring um so we did a few things so we we upgraded our, our systems to be using new relic to help us find errors and it was there but um it wasn't being utilized in, in a good enough way so we used a apm there we looked at cloudwatch and we, we introduced cloudwatch metrics to help us watch traffic to help us see slow uh, transactions um, log entries helped us a lot uh, in terms of spotting anomalies in the logs. Pingdom was actually uh, a really surprising um, good addition to the monitoring. Um, it simply just just calls any health check endpoint you want and has some some nice Slack and, and messaging integration. It was 
that was great for us. It, it, it's uh, helped us a lot. So we did a couple of other things like um, some small end-to-end tests that would um, give us a kind of a heartbeat to, to how the system was running. Um, and, and they were also gave us the, the kind of confidence that we would know about an issue before a customer and being able to allow us to get rid of that red button. All of these are, are managed services that, that you either send logs to or check health endpoints on your system. Mm-hmm. Did you configure them somehow to text your team or, or send messages to your team when certain conditions were met? Or So we, we, we started with just like a simple Slack channel that would... Uh, would send us any kind of DevOps related issues into into there, and that that's kind of what helped us change the culture a little bit in terms of being more aware of the, the infrastructure and the operations. And Pingdom was was great for set, setting up a team with p- people who who would get notifications for various parts of the system. And uh, our CloudWatch um, alarms, we set up a little Lambda function that would just forward on any critical uh, messages to to text us. And before this, you said it was basically just user calls, and now you are actually shifting to kind of proactively identifying the problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was some small, really small alerts there, but nothing as comprehensive as this. We actually um, we changed some of the applications. We introduced health endpoints to all of them, so they would report on their ability to connect to a message broker, their ability to connect to a database any dependencies that they actually needed, we, we would actually check as part of pinging that endpoint. So uh, if you hit any of our servers, we any new or, or older ones, they would all have like a forward slash health endpoint and that would give you back a JSON structure uh, and give us a, a good insight in, into how healthy that component was. And if there was a problem and you were trying to debug issues, were you mostly able to log into... Uh, these third-party services like log entries or New Relic to actually track down the problem? Yeah, so again, th- those services give us that information, but it would always come back to, you know, being it, if you needed to get into a server and a, a big thing, which we'll talk about is Docker, um, we, we don't have SSH access into those servers, so we rely on on those third parties to, to give us that information. But in the past, maybe we would, ha- would have had to get in and, you know, look at the processes and take dumps but with log entries and new relic we were able to to do that stuff without needing to Mm, so previously you might have someone actually ssh into the individual boxes and and look at log files and things like that exactly so quite easy when you've got one server but um, as we'll discuss when you've got many small containers and it's extremely complicated Mm-hmm. Next, I'd like to talk about, uh, since you mentioned Docker, uh, how did you make the decision to move to Docker? So it was something our CTO was really aware of, and he he really wanted us to, to explore this. The big benefits for us was that shift in mindset of one guy not being responsible for deployments, but us actually developing and using Docker in our, our day-to-day workflow. And the cost implications as well, the, the fact that we could, instead of having that, say, 8x large, we could have running one application server, we could have 12 containers running on much smaller containers running on, on EC2 instances. So it was that idea of being able to to maximize uh, CPU and memory but was a huge, huge benefit for us that we, we, we saw. Mm, so the the primary driver was was almost your AWS bill or your... 
Big time, yeah. Portable applications that, um, you know, had much less maintenance. We didn't have to go in and worry about it because we had, a, I guess, a, we mentioned this earlier, like these kind of siloed tech stacks. We didn't need to, to worry about a Ruby environment or a PHP environment or a Java JVM install. It was just in the container and it was a hugely big and important thing for, for us to do. It was really kind of well taught out by our CTO at the time. So, so you mentioned like Ruby containers and JVMs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Does your application actually have a bunch of different frameworks and a bunch of different languages? Yeah. So um, as we split out the, that monolith, uh, we also, I guess, started building smaller domain specific, not, not micro, I'd say kind of uh, services responsible for, for areas of the system. Uh, our online booking stack. So if you go to any of our customers, um, you know, you can book in their point of sale system in the salon, but you can also book on your phone. And we have a custom domain for every one of those salons. So it's like forest.com forward slash book forward slash foundation here. Um, If you click on that, you're going to be brought to the online booking stack, which is a a Rails app actually and an Ember Ember JS front end. So um, the system as we started splitting it apart, became more and more distributed. And Docker was great for us in terms of consistency and that portability, particularly around different tech stacks. Migrating to Docker made it easier for you to both develop and to deploy using a bunch of different tech stacks. Exactly. When running through your CI pipeline, would you configure it to create an image that you would put into a private registry, such as Amazon's Elastic Container Registry? Yeah, so we made the mistake of building and hosting our own registry at the start. Uh, we quickly realized the pain in that around three, four months in, where, um, and actually at the same time as Amazon released the ECR. So I guess the main reason we, we did that ourselves was because we were early adopters and, and we, we paid a little tax on that, but we did, uh, we moved to ECR. So our typical application kind of pipeline is... Uh, Build unit test, maybe integration, acceptance tests, build a container. And some of those applications, they run acceptance tests against the container running on the CI server, uh, push push to the registry. And after it's pushed to the registry, then we would configure deployment and trigger it off. Do you have a manual process where somebody watches the pipeline go through and you make the call to push or not? Or is it a automated process? No, it's automated. So... Um, we built a small kind of deployment framework, again, because we were early adapters of Amazon's ECS, uh, their container service. Uh, so we built a small um, deployment stack, which, which allowed us to, to essentially configure new services in ECS and deploy new, new versions of our application through the CI to our uh, ECS clusters. So it was all automated. Were you using an infrastructure as code solution, such as CloudFormation? Yeah, so when we were looking back at the problems in the old, good old days, uh, you know, we seen that one was, you know, uh, things were just configured on the AWS console. And we, we knew we needed infrastructure as code and we needed uh, repeatability and the ability to recreate stuff. So we, we used CloudFormation and essentially what, what very, something very similar to Terraform um, and we do use Terraform for, for some of our managing our, our messaging clusters and some other things. Okay, so you maybe initially moved from having someone manually going in and, and creating virtual machines mm-hmm. to more of a infrastructure as code approach. Exactly, yeah. 
you you had mentioned that one of the primary drivers of of using Docker was performance. Did you start creating performance metrics so that you knew how much progress you were making in that front? Yeah, so essentially that the effort to kind of make our infrastructure more reliable, it's it was a set as kind of a set of uh, steps to get there and we started with API level testing to make sure that anything we changed under the hood, it didn't break the end-to-end functionality. And we also wrote a bunch of performance tests, particularly around pulling down appointments, creating appointments and sending large large volumes of messages. We, we knew we couldn't have any regressions there. So we used Gatling to do those performance tests. And we, we would run that from continuous integration server and we do various types of soak testing to make sure we weren't, weren't taking any steps backwards. So each time you would do a deployment, you would run performance tests to ensure that you weren't getting slower or you weren't having any problems from the new deployment. Yeah, I, I would say though that like uh, this kind of effort, we, we called it Project Darwin internally, this effort to, to kind of, it had a few goals, but it was all about, you know, becoming fault tolerant, being more scalable, reducing Amazon costs. and during Project Darwin, we, we didn't just move our 12, 1500 salons. We didn't just drop them and move them to Docker. There was so many changes under the hood that these performance tests were key to, to giving us uh, a pulse on how, how we were doing. But um, I guess when we were done with Project Darwin and every, everything was on Docker and, and everyone was much, much happier, um, we, we just we run those performance tests ad hoc and as, as as part of some release pipelines. Mm, okay. So initially you were undergoing a lot of big changes and that was where it was really important to uh, check the performance metrics with, with every build. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the, the big challenges? Cause you mentioned you were changing a lot of things. What, what were some of the big challenges moving your existing architecture to Docker and to ECS? There was a couple. The biggest, there's two huge ones. So one was state. Getting state out of those big servers was extremely hard. We needed to re- remove the level two cache because we ne- because we needed to turn that one server into smaller, low balance containers. We needed to remove the state because we didn't want somebody in one ter- computer terminal fetching their appointments and then on their first Go mobile app looking at different data. So we had to get rid of state. And the, the challenge there was that my SQL performance just wasn't good enough for us. So um, we actually had to look really hard at migrating to Amazon Aurora, which is what we did. Again, coming back to cost, uh, Aurora is much more cost effective in terms of the system beforehand was provisioned for peak load. So we, we would have provisioned IOPS for Friday afternoon, the busiest time that the salon was using the system. And we were paying that for the same amount on a Sunday night compared to Aurora where you're, you're paying for IOPS uh, and the additional benefits of performance around uh, how Amazon rebuilt the storage engine there. So that's the caching side of things. The other big, big challenge was the VPC. So we needed to get all of our applications in, into a VPC to, to be able to use the, the latest instance types on Amazon. Uh, and also to, for our application to be able to talk security to Aurora database. So those two are definitely the biggest challenges. With the MySQL setup, it sounded like you had to pay for your peak usage, whereas with Aurora, 
it automatically scales up and down. Is is that correct? Um, no, you're actually charged per read and write. So that would be the big oh, difference. Oh, I see. Per read and write. Okay. Yeah. So it's just per operation. So you don't actually think about what your needs are going to be. It kind of just char- charges you based on how it's used. Yeah. The other really nice thing was uh, looking back at our incident reports, a really common issue would have been, hey, the database has ran out of storage. Mm. And uh, Aurora does actually auto-scale its, its storage engine. You, you mentioned removing state from your servers and you, you mentioned removing the level two cache. Can you kind of explain sort of at a high level what that, that means to those who don't understand that part? Sure. So in the Java world, when you have an ORM framework, like Hibernate. Essentially, when you query the database, that cache will store that data um, in its level two cache. And what that means is that it doesn't need to hit the, the database for every query. And that's the, that was the solution for, for Forrest as we were in that MVP slash early days, but it wasn't the solution for us when, to become fault tolerant. So it would be someone makes a query to an ORM, in this case, it's and it's Hibernate. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the server's memory, it would retrieve the results from there instead of from the database. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's what I was coming back to around um, querying an API for a list of appointments. Uh, if you had two servers deployed with, with them using an L2 cache, you would get different state because cache. So did you put a different cache in place or did you remove the cache entirely? So we removed that cache entirely, but we did have a, a rest cache, which is was memcached. And that's distributed and we used cache keys ba- based on uh, entity versions. So that was distributed and, and worked well with multiple containers behind a load balancer. So you remove the the cache from the individual servers, but you do have a managed uh, memcached instance that you use. Yeah, exactly. And getting rid of that level two cache, our performance tests told us that MySQL just wasn't performant enough, whereas Aurora was much better at handling those types of queries. Some large joins, it was a, it's a big, big relational database. So we, we've talked about adding in continuous integration, monitoring, performance metrics, uh, Aurora, Docker. Did any of these processes require large changes to your code base? To be honest, not really. It was more about plumbing things together and a lot of orchestration from a a human point of view. So um, people being aware of how all this stuff worked and uh, essentially making sure that we all knew we were on the right page. I don't like the biggest... uh, piece of engineering and coding work was the deployment and infrastructure scripts. So provisioning the VPCs, writing the integrations with ECS, uh, that, that sort of thing. But um, in terms of actual coding, it wasn't too invasive. I think that's actually a positive for a lot of people because I believe there are people who think they need to do a big uh, rewrite if they have you know, performance problems or problems keeping track of the status of their system. But I think this is a good case study that shows that you don't necessarily need to do a rewrite. You just need to put additional processes and checks in place and um, maybe change your deployment process to kind of get the results that you want. 
It's about the foundations as well. If you have some really strong people at the start who, you know, pave some good uh, roads there in terms of good practices, like just for example, a really good uh, database change uh, management setup, some good packaging of the code, really good packaging of the code. So it was quite easy for us to to slip out five services from that that big monolith. It's about the foundations at the start because it would be quite easy to to build an MVP with some people who who write you know thousand line PHP scripts and the product works and that that's a different case study because you know you can't you can't fix that essentially right so it's because the original foundation was strong that you were able to undergo this sort of transformation yeah truly yeah adopting all of these processes did they resolve all of the key problems your your business faced. When we when we look back and we see that you know all of our systems are running on Docker, we we see a, a huge cost benefit. So uh, that problem was certainly solved. We we were able to see issues before our customers, so we had better transparency uh, in the system. No longer was uh, were we dependent on one big server. Uh, a thousand customers were no longer dependent on one big server. Um, so it meant that we, we have really good, we, and we do have really good fault tolerance on, on those containers. If one of them dies, ECS will, will literally kill it, uh, bring up a new one. Uh, it'll also do some auto scaling for us. Say on uh, a Monday morning, it'll you maybe have eight containers running, but on a, a Friday, maybe it'll auto scale to 14. So that's been groundbreaking for us in terms of how we work. We went from shipping monthly to quarterly, to, from between monthly and quarterly to, to daily. And something I, I use as a, a, a team health metric right now is, is our frequency of, of deployment. And I'd say we're hitting about 25 deployments a week now compared to the olden days is, is, is great. We always want to get better at it. I would say that th- those have been really amazing things for us. But also in terms of the team, it's, it's a lot easier for us now to hire a new engineer and bring them in because of this consistency. And also, um, I guess, uh, we're not reliant on these pockets of, of knowledge anymore. So we, again, around hiring, it's, it's a lot easier for someone to come into the system and, and know how things work. And I think in terms of hiring as well, when you talk about the kind of setup, it's, uh, it's, you know, you know, there's some, some good stuff happening there. It sounds like you have a better picture in terms of monitoring the system. You brought your costs down uh, significantly. Uh, the deployment process is much easier. The existence of the containers and ECS is kind of serving the purpose of where people used to have to monitor the individual servers and bring them up themselves, but now you've sort of outsourced that to Amazon to take care of. Uh, does that sound? Uh, does that all sound correct? Yeah, spot on. And I find it interesting too that you had mentioned that improving all of your processes actually made it easier to bring new people in, and that's because you were saying things are now more clearly defined in terms of what to do, rather than all of this information kind of being tribal in a sense. Yeah. Like a typical example would be like, hey, uh, let's redeploy this uh, bug fix. And say previously, you know, it might be a Capistrano deploy or 
you know, oh, you need to get SSH keys to this thing and you need to log in here and you need to, to build this code on this local machine and try and ship it up. And that just all goes away, um, particularly with Docker and that, that continuous integration pipeline. is just, it sets a really good set of standards and things that people should find quite, you know, easy and repeatable. And uh, so now in terms of deployment, you can use something like CloudFormation and you have the continuous integration process that can deploy your software without somebody having to know specifically about how that part works. Exactly. So I would say if we wanted to create like a new service responsible for some new new functionality in Forest, uh, say a Spring Boot application, a Java application, they can simply provide a Docker file and get that deployed to dev, staging, or production with, I would say, 10 lines of YAML configuration. So you could go from initial setup of a project to, to production in a day if you wanted to. It is zero friction there, I would say. Mm-hmm. It really makes the, the onboarding a lot easier then. Yeah. Do you think your team waited too long to change their processes, or do you think these changes came at just the right time? I would say if we waited any longer, it could have been detrimental to, to I guess, the health of the business. I think that the guys did a, a great job in terms of getting us to a certain point, but we would have risked technical decay, I would say, and uh, kind of uh, really... Uh, harming the, the organization if it had have gone any further i would say it was it was a lot of work to do this and it could have been easier if if we had have paid more attention to technical debt and making the right decisions earlier on so maybe saying no to that customer who wants a bespoke piece of functionality but you have to do what you have to do so so you would say maybe identifying earlier on just how much the current processes were causing you problems, if you had identified that earlier, mm-hmm. um, you think you might have made the decision to try and make these changes uh, at an earlier time? Yeah. So the guys earlier were, were making really good decisions, but maybe they didn't have the experience for you know higher scale scalability s- solutions and, and systems. So it's, it's about hiring the, the right people at different stages of where the product is evolving, I would say. Given what you've gone through with the migration at Forest, what advice would you give to someone building a new process? What what can they do to keep ahead of either technical debt or any of the other issues you you faced? I think it's about how it's it's actually a, a people um, and cultural thing, along with tech decisions. So. Everybody needs to be really aligned in terms of the decisions that they're making rather than letting people go on an individual basis. I think there needs to be good leadership in terms of getting a group of people thinking the same way. I reckon that technical currency is is extremely important. And as your system grows, you need to be able to to look look back and, and identify areas of pain. And by pain, I mean you know, speed of deployment, uh, speed of development, and ability to adapt and change your software. So if you notice that a feature that used to maybe take a week is now taking two weeks, 
you know, you probably need to take a really hard look at that area of the system and figure out, could it be simplified? Um, and why, why is it taking too long? Basically identifying exactly where your pain points are, um, so that you can really focus your efforts and, and have an idea of what you're really going for. Yeah. You need to build, um, an environment of trust. And I would also say that you need to be able to, to be able to be confident and okay with failure in terms of take, taking risks sometimes and saying no to, to features and customers to be able to, to push back on, on leadership and make sure that you're, you're really evolving the system the right way and not just, uh, becoming a feature factory. Yeah. It's always going to be a kind of balance on, you know, how much can you pull back, but still stay competitive in whatever space you're in. Yeah. So what, what we're doing right now, based on those lessons is, we tried to do like a six to eight week burst of work and we would always try and take a week or two wiggle room between that and starting something new to look back at what we just built and make sure we're happy with it, but also look at our, our, our technical backlog and see if there's anything there that's really paying us. And just even for example, this week, we, we noticed an issue with a lot of builds failing on our CI because of uh, how how it was set up to push Docker images. So occasionally they would fail. And that was actually a real pain point for us just over the last couple of months, because maybe a deployment, which should take 20 minutes was taking 40 because you'd have to re-trigger it. So that, that's just like, that's an example of us looking at what, what was high value and making sure we just fix it before we start something new. So making sure that you don't kind of end up in the same situation where you started where these technical issues sort of build without people noticing them instead kind of in shorter iterations doing sort of a sanity check and making sure like mm-hmm. everything is working and we're all going in the right direction. Yeah. It's about the team. And I mentioned before, it's about, you know, the leadership and a group of people together talking through common issues and, you know, maybe meet, meet every two, three weeks, talk about some key metrics in the system. Why is it this too high? Why is this too low? You know, you can through the kind of through your peers, you can really see the pain points and, and they'll they'll more than likely tell you them. When you look back at all the different technologies and processes you adopted, did you feel that any of them had too much overhead for someone starting out? What was your experience in general? So some people just didn't like doing code reviews. Some people just really just felt that they could just push push what they needed and that it was almost a uh, a judgment on them in terms of the code review process, which it t- totally wasn't. I would say uh, some people found Jenkins and continuous integration a bit, you know, what's the point? So we we had we had some you know some pain points there, um, but as we got to Docker, as people seen the benefits of of these things, you know, less bugs going into production. Uh, less things breaking, people being able to go home nice and early in the evening and not be woke up in the middle of the night with a you know an outage call. Those are were all the, the the benefits, and that's us reaping the rewards of of thinking like this. Your team was bringing on a bunch of new things at once. What was your process for adopting all these new things without overwhelming your team? So it was starting at the foundation. So. The continuous integration, the code reviews were 
were incrementally brought in and we, we had regular team meetings to discuss pros and cons. And it was really important for people to, to input on those things uh, rather than to, to, to just implement them. They would have failed if, if we had done it like that. It took time and I would still, I would say we're still not in a perfect world, but it's about group, group consensus and, and making sure that everyone, everyone's bought into to what we're trying to achieve. Mm, so basically getting everyone in the same room and making sure they understand what exactly the goal is and everyone's on the same page. Yeah. So we try to make a big effort, uh, particularly for people who are working remotely to get them all in the same room once a quarter. We talk about our challenges, talk about our goals, talk about our values and make sure we're all on the same page. And sometimes we tweak them and, it, you know, that's how we feel it's best to, to do it. Finally, I, w- I want to talk about what's next for, for Forrest. What are the remaining pain points you have now and, and what do you plan on tackling next? So right now we're on 4,000 salons on our platform. We're really happy with the state of the infrastructure to get us to maybe eight to 10,000 salons, but we need to be really conscious of the company's growth and our goals. So we need to make sure that we can scale at a much bigger level. And we also need to make sure that our customers aren't affected by uh, our, our growth. We're, we're looking at serverless for any kind of newer pieces of the product to see if they can help us reduce costs even more and and help us stay stay agile in terms of our infrastructure and how we roll out. A couple of years ago, when we launched into the USA, we noticed we um, it doubled our overhead in terms of infrastructure operations and deployment. And as we grow in the US, we we need to be really conscious of not making any um, I guess uh, mistakes from the past. So you're mostly looking forward to additional scaling challenges and, exactly. and possibly addressing those with serverless or some other type of technology? Yeah. So um, one area in particular would be our SMS sending. So that's kind of a plan for the next six to to eight months would be to make sure that we can continue to scale at the growth rate of uh, SMS and email sending, which is is huge in the platform. Mm. You said so far you've been experiencing 30% growth year over year Mm -hmm. and you said when you moved to the U.S., you actually doubled your customer base? I'd say we doubled our uh, overhead in terms of infrastructure managing deployments. We, we're still very early stage in the U.S., and that's uh, our, our big focus for the moment. But as, as we grow there, we, we need to be, I guess, more operationally aware of, of how, it's, how it's going over there. It's a much bigger market. To kind of cap it off, how, uh, how can people follow you on the Internet? Sure. So you can grab me on Twitter at John Will Doran, J-O-H-N-W-I-L Doran. And if you ever want to reach out to me and talk to me about any of this uh, type of stuff, I'd, I'd love to, to meet up with you. So feel free to reach out.